others. It's the, the transforming effect of the love of God is that I actually care now for other people rather than for myself. When I live under Satan, I only ever care for myself, really. I mean, I'll care for the people who care for me, but I won't care for strangers. I won't care for people I don't get on with. I won't care for you. Uh, but now because I've found God's love for me, it changes me to love you. And because I love you, therefore, I want you saved. So the love motivates us, but it's God's love for us, our love for God, and the God's love for us spreads to our love for other people. Evangelism then is the evidence of grace, generosity, love, mercy. It's the evidence of it. It's not a new commandment. It's not that God has ten commandments, now he's added a new one in the eleventh, in the New Testament, and the eleventh commandment is you must evangelise. That is not there. He does add a new, uh, a new commandment in the New Testament. What is the new commandment of the New Testament? Jesus gave it to us. Make disciples. Make disciples? No. There's a more general commandment that he gives us on the night he was betrayed. When he washed the disciples' feet. Love one another. Yeah. This is the new commandment I give unto you, that by this will all men you are, know you are my disciples, because you love one another. Uh, and no greater love could you express than to lay down your life for other people's salvation. And so our laying down our life for others by preaching the gospel to them is evidence of the work of grace within us. It's evidence of the love of God for us that we've grasped hold of. It's evidence of our love for God that we have now understood that we would ever care to share the gospel with others. So there's very few commandments in the Bible, the orders in the Bible, to evangelise. They don't need to be. Because as the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If we've if we've been rescued and saved, how can we keep it quiet, is the argument on the way of evangelism. But tonight we're going to move to that other question, the who of evangelism. But who actually should do it? Uh, the, the commandment of God, you go make disciples, was given to the apostles. Are the apostles the one who should be evangelising? Are there special missionaries? Are there people who are the evangelists? Should they be the ones who evangelise? Should all Christians evangelise? Should ordained ministers evangelise? Who, who is it that should evangelise? But before that, we've got a couple of other things that we, uh, I like to do each week. One is to have a history spot. Last week we did a history spot on Billy Graham. If you may remember the man in the 20th century who preached to more people than has ever preached before. He only died a year or so ago, 99 years and a half old. Um, uh, he died, I think, 2018. Um, but he, he preached to, to millions of people. Well, tonight I'm going to give you the other end of the spectrum. Who of you know Edward Kimball? Ever heard of Edward Kimball? You have. Good. One. 
the rest of us haven't. So let me tell you about Edward Kimball, because Edward Kimball is by and large unknown. He was a 19th century Sunday school teacher at Mount Vernon Church, Congregational Church in Boston. Most of us have never heard Mount Vernon Church, let alone the Congregational Church of Boston, let alone this man. But he's very famous for one thing, really. He led a 17-year-old boy, man, to Christ, who was working in a boot shop. The 17-year-old was, was a tearaway kid, but he had terrible problems. He was the seventh of nine children. Uh, his father died when he was four. His twin brother and sister were born a week after his father, or a month after his father died. So there was his mother widowed with nine children. It was well before we had widows' pensions. And so, in fact, we used to have widows' pensions here, but they've been done away with. Uh, through the folly of people not caring for women properly. But there were no widow's pensions back in the 19th century. So you've got nine children to feed and you're in, you're in big trouble, basically. So as soon as the children were old enough, they were put into factories to work, including this boy. And uh, it was very hard to get good work for them. But the mother raised them going to a Unitarian church. Hands up those who have never heard of a Unitarian church and don't know what it is. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, the Unitarian church was popular in the late 19th, early 20th century. They're still around. There'll be one in Sydney somewhere. They are anti-Trinitarian. That's why they're called Unitarian. They do not believe that Jesus is God. Uh, they, Jesus was just a man. And Jesus could not die for the sins of the whole world, turning aside the wrath of God. They believed in morality. There is one God, Jesus is his human son, and the model of how to live a good life. And what you've got to do is be moral like Jesus, is the gospel of the Unitarians. It was, you know, it was Christianized in the sense that it wasn't modeled on Muhammad, it was modeled on Jesus. But it wasn't Christian, but it was very popular, especially the, amongst the upper class, and in this case, the very poor. Uh, it was a way out of Christianity. Nearly all the people who were Unitarian, their children were atheists. It was the, the shift out of Christianity. The great uh, English philosopher of the 20th century, uh, um, uh, Russell Gordon, no, what's his name, uh, uh, um, the mathematician Bertrand Russell, uh, who wrote this book, atheistic book on why I'm not a Christian, he was raised by a Unitarian grandmother. So the Christianity he rejected was not Christianity. <laughs> um, if, if that's what he meant by Christianity, I could write the book why I'm not a Christian either too because that's just not Christianity. But Unitarianism is very common. This little boy was raised in, by a Unitarian mother, uh, but the, she found a job for him in Boston. He didn't come from Boston. Found a job for him with an uncle who ran a boot factory in a boot shop. But the uncle said, I will have you come to, come to work with me, but you must come to my church every Sunday. None of this Unitarian stuff. And my church was the Mount Vernon Congregational Church. 
And so he came along and applied for membership and the church turned him down because he didn't believe what he was supposed to believe. But his teacher, Edward Kimball, kept on working with him and would go and meet with him lunchtimes in the boot factory and do Bible study with him until one day he actually came to Christ. Ed Edward Kimball said of him, I can truly say, and in saying it I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I've seen few persons uh, whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to find any extended sphere of public usefulness. But see, the grace of God, the, the infinite grace of God, took this young fellow and brought him into forgiveness of sins and repentance through the teaching of the gospel. His name was Dwight L. Moody, who was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. He went preaching to thousands upon thousands of people all around the world. Didn't make it to Australia, but all over Europe and North America. He just preached repeatedly to people and saw hundreds and hundreds of people converted uneducated. He couldn't actually read properly. He was so uneducated. But he went to Cambridge and ran the biggest evangelistic mission they've ever had in Cambridge University. Hundreds upon hundreds of students were converted at the Moody uh, mission in Cambridge. The first night at the mission they all laughed at him because he kept on mispronouncing words. He called Daniel Daniel and they really laughed at him you see. But by the end of the week Hundreds of them have become Christians through the preaching of a man who was illiterate, uneducated, into the great halls of Cambridge University. He just, God blessed him wherever he went in an incredible way. And so you can easily read up about Moody. Uh, I was going to tell you about Moody, but I'll tell you another time about Moody. You'll get someone to tell you about Moody. I want you to tell you Edward Kimball's view, uh, uh, his impact, because that's actually what is just to remind me later. Yes, I will. No, I won't really. Oh, I don't want to. How do these happen, these things? Get out of there. Go away. Go away. There? Yes? Okay. Go. Now where am I? Oh, here we go. Oh, I tell you, I don't understand how you've created such a monstrous system. But now nothing is happening, you see. Next slide. Hey, here's his impact. Are we ready? There, he saw Dwight Moody converted. And Moody, big fat rotund man, preached to thousands. <laughs> Maya was converted through him. And Maya went on to be a great evangelist preaching to thousands as well. Maya had a big influence on a Presbyterian minister called Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur didn't know how to evangelise, but Maya taught him how to evangelise, and so Wilbur Chapman then became the great Presbyterian evangelist of North America. In his preaching, he saw a baseball player converted. The baseball player was a man called Billy Sunday. 
who was also pretty uneducated and was as rough as guts, he went preaching around the world. He did come to Sydney. He was here in the 1920s preaching the gospel here. He went all over the world preaching the gospel quite dramatically. Uh, did, he, did he preach? Uh, rough as, very rough language was the way in which Billy Sunday preached the gospel. Amongst the people that uh, he saw converted was a man called Mordecai Ham, uh, who then also took up the cudgels and started preaching. You see how the dates are moving on, don't you? That uh, Mordecai Ham went to 1961, but he, of course, saw Billy Graham converted. So we've come back to the circle that we started at. See? Through these men, millions of people around the world have heard the gospel. Each one of them has got a Wikipedia page. That's where I lifted the photos from. <laughs> right? Everyone's except Edward Kimball. He hasn't got a Wikipedia page. No one actually remembers Edward Kimball much. He was just a Sunday school teacher. But he was the Sunday school teacher who faithfully taught this one little boy, this one young fella, the Bible, never realising that as a result of that, 150 more years later, people would be hearing the gospel through the disciples of the disciples. Of the... You never know who's in your Sunday school class. You never know the next person you're speaking to. The most unlikely convert he had ever seen was converted under the grace of God and turned out to be the father of a whole dynasty of great international evangelists. You may never be a Billy Graham, you may be. You may be the next one who's going to reach the world with your preaching, etc. And, uh, praise God if you are, that's a wonderful thing. But that's not the important one. The important one is Edward Kimball. That's the important one. Just taking the opportunity with the people that are before you, whatever they are, whoever they are, the individual, the person, that you'll take them into the kingdom of God. That's what matters. Uh, uh, I've got no photo, well I have got a photo of Edward Kimball which I found after I'd done all this beautiful art. It's impressive isn't it that I could do all that. You're supposed to be impressed. But I've then found having done all that that someone had done this already. <laughs> which is a little annoying if you get my drift. You, know, you would have just got that if I'd seen it earlier. And that has got the photo of Edward Kimball up there in the far left uh, as the only one that we no, I love the way that the hair goes on and off the different moody photographs uh, that are through the, through the years. Uh, a hairy man who shaved infrequently as best I can work out. Um, but there's the influence. Now you see, who's doing this is putting a big question mark there to say, are you the next Billy Graham? That's not my question. My question is, are you Edward Kimball? That's my question. If you are Billy Graham, fantastic, wonderful, but I want you to be Edward Kimball. I want you to speak to whoever you speak to carefully with the gospel to take them to Christ. Even if this means giving up your lunchtime to go down to a boot factory and talk to the boy week by week, taking him through the gospel so that he sees it. Even if you're speaking to someone who seems highly unlikely to ever become a Christian, you just never know who you're talking about. Part of the reason I love evangelism is a God, an ungodly reason for loving evangelism is you're playing with live ammunition. You know, I never know who I'm talking I know if this person's going to turn out to be my friend for the rest of my life, or this person's going to walk away from me and I'll never see again. I never know 
what's going to the outcome of this whether their life is going to be turned around or whether they're going to be hostile to the end it's just a wonderful thing so there is the challenge Edward Kimball who hasn't got a Wikipedia page so he's obviously a nobody like other people here who haven't got a Wikipedia page I say to my embarrassment because I have and it's dreadful whoever writes it doesn't know me so we look then tonight at the who of evangelism your questions to come to kick off in your discussions in the groups the, the, the groups that you're in is do all Christians have to evangelize if not all Christians then who should and who in the Bible did evangelize and who in the Bible was called to evangelize okay let's combine our wisdom shall we and hear what people are saying in the other groups do all Christians have to evangelize yes they should is that the same as have to? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's a trick in the have to, isn't it? And the should, and whether have to, have to in order to what? In order to be saved? Well, no, they don't have to. Have to in the sense that it would be a sin if they didn't, no. But the emphasis on the word is all, really, so the question is, that is it a matter for everybody or only some to evangelise? And if not, then who should? Well, go to the other end. Who? Who in the Bible did you see did evangelise? Yes, Philip did in Acts 8, and Peter does in Acts 3 and 4, and Paul does, yes, throughout it, yes. Acts in 29, James does, yes, in Acts 29. What was Stephen called to do? To feed the widows, to care for the distribution, that's right. What was Philip called to do? Now, Philip was one of the seven who was called to look after the widows in the distribution as well. But they're both called upon to, to care for the widows and to allow the apostles to get on with the word of God and prayer. But then in chapter 7, that's in chapter 6, in chapter 7, what we find Stephen do is preaching the gospel. And in chapter 8, what we find is Philip preaching the gospel. And then later in chapter 21, Philip is called the evangelist, who has seven daughters, I think, if I remember correctly, or some other interesting phenomenon about him. But he's the evangelist. But yet he's not called anywhere that we know of to be the evangelist. He's called to do the social work. That is interesting. Who else did you see evangelized? Everyone in the church did. Where's that? In the sense of testifying in Revelation 12 that all the believers did in Revelation 12. All right, there's a simpler one to show all the believers did, if anyone can remember where. We need someone to read Acts 8, 1 to 4. Um, now, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. But who were those who were scattered? Back in verse 2, who were the ones who were scattered? The church in, well, there was only one church, that was the church in Jerusalem. But who, who wasn't scattered? 
who was and who wasn't. Apostles weren't scattered. Yeah, everybody but the apostles left Jerusalem and it was everyone who left who preached the word. So all Christians preached the word. Right? There's good illustrations. So Revelation 12. What verse numbers were that? You can't remember. Okay, right hand, left hand column, left hand page on his Bible. Revelation 12 and Acts 8, 1 to 4. Great illustration of everybody preaching the gospel. The apostles preached the gospel in the book of Acts, especially you see. Who was the first person said to preach the gospel in the New Testament? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He preaches the gospel because what he preached was exactly the same as the person who first preached the gospel. So who was the person who first preached the gospel? Jesus. Jesus. When in doubt, say Jesus. I tried to get you to say it. But Jesus, yes. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel uh, that's the first gospel preaching we have in the New Testament it doesn't sound like much of a gospel to us because it leaves out most of two ways to live it leaves out the death, it leaves out the creation, it leaves out sin it leaves, it leaves a lot out doesn't it the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So it's got page six in. Repent and believe. And not much else. But remember, my friends, the ring of truth. Remember that you don't have to say everything to say the truth. Because the truth is circular. Jesus is preaching one little bit of that ring at the time. At that point... He hadn't died on the cross. At that point, he hadn't risen from the dead. But still the kingdom was coming. That was true. The time had been fulfilled. That was true. And the response to that message was repentance and belief. That was true. So he's preaching the truth. I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, I don't know how to remove it now that I've done it. So let's just move on, shall we? So here's the one. Certainly the apostles. Now, when were the apostles ever... Oh, I'll come back to our question. When was the apostle ever called to evangelise? Matthew 10, when they're sent out on the mission. Yes. When else? The Great Commission in Matthew 28 and in Luke 24. Last night I mentioned a great song that we sang in Beechwish and only discovered that Alison Napier and I are the only two people who ever sang it on Beechwish. When Jesus called... The apostles, the fishers of men. I will, yes, I will make you fishers of men. Right? Leave your nets, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So from the very beginning of the apostles, right, when they first were ever called by Jesus, they were called to evangelise. Right from the start. The idea of calling people to evangelism is right there at the beginning. They get continued to be called to do it in chapter 10. They get sent out to do it at chapter 28, all in Matthew's Gospel. Okay? So the apostles clearly are that. Then there are a group called the evangelists. The, the word evangelist only occurs a few times. It occurs with Philip in, in Acts 21. Um, he's the only person who is called an evangelist. But there are two other references to the word evangelist. Do you know where either of them are? 
Ephesians 4, well done, had a one hour six chance, that was good. Ephesians 4, where Jesus gives that some will be apostles, some will be prophets, some will be evangelists, some will be pastor teachers. But saying some will be evangelists doesn't mean that only the evangelists evangelise, any more than only the prophets will prophesy. See, in 1 Corinthians 12, you're told not all are prophets. But in 1 Corinthians 14, we're told we can all prophesy. That is, there are people who have a particular gift for doing it, but that doesn't mean others can't or shouldn't be involved in the doing of it. It's just there are some who are really good at prophesying. And everybody can who's a Christian. In the same way, there are some, everybody can evangelise, but there are some people who've got a real knack for it, a real gift for it, which is different from saying only those people should do it, because the other reference illustrates it to you. Where's the other reference to the evangelist? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, which you'll read the passage for us, please. Paul is speaking to Timothy, giving him a charge at the end of this epistle, and he writes... Do the work of an evangelist. He's not saying he is an evangelist, he's saying do the work of an evangelist. And that's because the evangelists had all gone on strike at that time and so he had to pull in somebody else to do it. It's not the case. And there's no demarcation dispute. Hey, you can't evangelise, you haven't got an evangelist licence. That's, that's not how the Bible operates. We can all evangelise. Some have a real gift for it. That great list of people that Kimball affected, they have all the great gift for it. But if it wasn't that Mr Kimball, they mightn't have come along at all. <laughs> he may not have been known having a great gift for it, but he evangelised nonetheless. So, believers are. And it goes right into the heart of your becoming a believer. If any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. For whoever would follow me... Um, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for those who will save their lives will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake finish it and the gospels will save it it's not just that I lose my life for Jesus I, if I'm going to lose my life for Jesus I've got to lose my life for his cause and his cause is the gospel so when you give yourself to Christ, you give yourself to world evangelism. It's at the same time. Now come with me to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 11. 1. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You have no offenders. Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the end, the climax of three chapters, 8, 9 and 10 about how you relate to each other when you disagree with things. And he says, well, I do nothing that will cause offence. Why? Because I'm trying to please everybody. Now most people who are men pleasers, try to please everybody, do it for their own sake. 
but not Paul. He tries to please everybody for their sake, not his sake. And their sake that he tries to please them for is that they may be saved. You see that there at the end of verse 33? And in doing that, he says, I'm doing what Jesus did. I do everything for the sake of others that they may be saved. I lay down my life for others that they may be saved. And so he says, that's what Jesus did. And so what you've got to do is imitate me in the same way I'm imitating Jesus. Now, how do you imitate Jesus? Uh, long hair, a beard, wearing dressing gowns and sandals, never catching a... No, that's not how you imitate Jesus. How you imitate Jesus is by the life you live and the death you die. You live and die for other people and their salvation. That is imitating Jesus. That is what Paul was doing. And so Paul is saying, I don't live for myself, I live for others. I lay down my life for others, just like Jesus. And you should be just like me in this regard. Come to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4. And we'll have a break after this one. Colossians 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly, verse 2, in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, verse 3. At the, same, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the sake of the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. It's a fantastic little verse, that, if you just ponder it for a moment. He's in prison. And he says, pray for us that we might have an open door. Every prisoner in the history of mankind has prayed that they might have an open door. What kind of open door does Paul want? An open door whereby I may escape is not what he's talking about. An open door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He's not asking to be released from prison. He's asking for the opportunity to evangelise the guards. To evangelise the other prisoners. There's a man who's committed to the gospel. And he goes on telling the Colossians what they should do. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You've got to have in mind all the time the non-believer, the outsider, in the way in which you live. And you must always have your speech, and it's a lovely combination, gracious, that is gentle, kind, nice, friendly, warm, seasoned with salt. That is, it's, it's got to have a sting to it at the same time. So you're, you're speaking graciously to people, but you're making a point. It's a very delicate balance, that one, isn't it? So that you may answer everybody. It's, it's how you live your life. It's just looking for the opportunity to somehow reach the outsider. Will I go through the whole gospel and lead him to Christ and her to Christ? Well, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? I'm not kind of expecting to. I'm just expecting to make a little ground. All the time, make a little ground, make a little ground is where I'm at. All Christians are involved in it. <laughs> Most of us are like Mr. Kimball. That's what most of us are like, or at least should be like. Have you got people like your neighbour, like my neighbour? 
you got people in Sunday school class, you've got people at church or uni or work or people that you can just have a word with here or there. Just offering to talk to them about God. The resurrection is more than an afterthought. Many people preach the gospel as if the resurrection is an afterthought. You know, they'll talk about sin and judgment and about how Jesus pays the price for our sin. And we need to repent and believe. Oh, and by the way, he's not dead, he's still alive. He rose from the dead. It's just a kind of denouement. It's a little tack on. I mean, you can't have following Jesus who's still dead. So you, you just remember that he rose from the dead. But it doesn't mean anything more than that. But the resurrection is not an afterthought. Because remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, the one thing they always mentioned was the resurrection. They didn't always mention Jesus' death for our sins. In fact, they hardly ever mentioned that. But they always mentioned the resurrection. It was critical for them. Other people see the resurrection as a kind of foolproof apologetic. That I can argue people into the kingdom by demonstrating the evidences for the resurrection. Well, that's not true. And what's worse, it's not biblical. It's not true. See, I had a friend who argued with a Hindu fellow student at uh, one of our university colleges many years ago and sat up to the wee small hours. And about two or three in the morning, the Hindu fellow said, I agree with you, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the only conclusion you can come to. And my friend lit up, then you'll become a Christian. And the Hindu said, no, of course not. There's all kinds of gurus in India who have died and risen again. I'll just add Jesus to the list. <laughs> See, it depends what you think the resurrection is as to whether you think Jesus rising from the dead means what it means. There's a very, very interesting book written by Pincus Lapid, P-I-N-C-H-A-S, Pincus Lapid, L-A-P-I-D-E called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. He was Jewish, Pincus Lapid. This book was written late 1980s, I think, and uh, he died around the turn of the century. But he was, um, he was a diplomat, an ambassador for the State of Israel. He was a thoroughly Jewish man. And he argues in the book that Jesus did rise from the dead. The historical evidences are overwhelmingly in favour of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. How can a Jewish man remain Jewish, not become Christian Jewish, remain anti-Christian Jewish, and believe Jesus rose from the dead? Well, he said, what God did in raising Jesus from the dead was to take Jewish monotheism and Jewish anti-idolatry into the Gentile world. Unfortunately, the, the Gentiles got a little bit confused and started thinking Jesus was God as well, but it moved away from the polytheism of the ancient world and the idolatry of the ancient world by God raising this Jewish prophet, Jesus, from the dead. So he believes in the resurrection, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He believes Jesus rose from the dead, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection and what the resurrection meant. Now, that's taught to you in your Bibles. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Luke 16 verse 31 
It's the end of the parable that Jesus tells about the rich man and the poor man and the rich man dies and goes to Hades and the poor man dies and goes to Abraham's bosom and the rich man looks up to uh, Abraham and says send the poor man back to give me some water and that can't happen so he says send him back to my brothers and warn them and what does Abraham say in verse 31 he said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead you can't use the resurrection of the dead to get unbelievers to believe it's not the foolproof apologetic argument that people try to use it as never was never will be because you've got to understand what the resurrection is to understand Jesus resurrection let me show it to you come to um, John 5 John 5 in verse I think it's about 25 yeah that'll do truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is the, what is the resurrection? The resurrection is the end of the world. The resurrection is the judgment of God. The resurrection is the end of the world in the judgment of God when those who are saved will go to salvation and those who are condemned will rise to go to condemnation. Go across to chapter 11 and see it there. Chapter 11 where Lazarus dies. Lazarus has two sisters if you remember, Mary and Martha. Jesus turns up four days late intentionally and Martha says to him, if you had been here in time, my brother wouldn't have died. Look at the little interchange between Jesus and Martha that takes place then. Martha, verse 21, Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now you and I knows what's going to happen. You and I know that Jesus is going to call Lazarus out of the grave. You and I know that he's been dead four days, but he's still going to come back, even though he stinketh, as the King James Version used to put it, with the original King James. I don't know about your modern one. Now, but Martha doesn't know that at that time. Notice Martha's reply. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. You haven't told me anything, Jesus. You haven't done a thing. You see, the good will rise to be with God and the bad will rise to condemnation. My brother was one of God's people. He'll rise to the... To, I know he's going to rise. You haven't said anything. That's because she didn't understand what Jesus was about to say and do. For Jesus' response to her was, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. The last day has come with Jesus. The judgment of the world has come with Jesus. The beginning of the new age of the resurrection has come with Jesus. It's not that he will rise on the last day. 
he's going to rise with me in death and resurrection it's all about to start the end of the world comes with me the resurrection is not an afterthought of well we've got to get Jesus back out of hell quickly so that he can no no the resurrection is the reason for which he's died for the sins of the world so that he will rise and be the king of kings and lord of lords the judge of all the earth uh, go across to Acts chapter 17 Acts 17 and see how Paul preaches it in verse 30 he's on the hill to Areopagus speaking with the Greek philosophers there and he comes to the climax of his sermon in verse 30 the times of ignorance God overlooks but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness how's he going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the judgment of the world it's the beginning of the end times it's the beginning of the kingdom of God it's it's what it's all about it's not an afterthought so let me tell you three things the resurrection demonstrated one it demonstrated the breaking of the sin death bond death the wages of sin is overcome by Jesus resurrection clearly he's risen from the dead death no longer can hold him but death can no longer hold him because he has paid fully for sin if he was still dead we would still be in our sin because sin hadn't been paid for fully but he had paid for sin fully therefore he has risen from the dead two Jesus is Christ and Lord remember the climax of the sermon on the day of Pentecost Jesus talks of the resurrection there uh, Peter talks of the resurrection there and then he concludes know this in Acts 2 verse 32 let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified it's in the resurrection that Jesus Christ is made Lord and Christ and thirdly the judgment has commenced with Jesus death and resurrection and it appoints Jesus as the judge in his death and resurrection so what are we saying God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler and judge of the world Jesus has conquered death now brings forgiveness and new life and will return again in glory resurrection is not just an afterthought and it's not just an apologetic argument it's a key part of the gospel so let's go back to the who of evangelism before we come to Q&A and I want to quickly run through for you some verses on the who of evangelism but before we run through those verses here's the question for you we've talked about the apostles we've talked about the Lord Jesus we've talked about believers who have we left out who is the evangelist what's who's the evangelist that we haven't really talked about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. well done well done we won't pursue it any longer because times against us now the Holy Spirit but we will pursue it by looking at what the Bible says come with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 
sorry, 1 Peter 1, yes, that's right, verses 10 to 12. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. I need someone else to read for a second or two, don't I? Change in voice. 1 Peter 1, I haven't got it yet, love, so you just go slow down so the old man can find it. Yes, 1 Peter 1, here we go. 1 Peter 1. They've preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's interesting thing, you see, the Spirit of Christ was at work in the Old Testament, working in the prophets, telling the prophets of what was going to happen. The Christ would suffer, the Christ would be glorified. The prophets didn't understand what they were talking about. They said it because the Holy Spirit told them to say it, but they didn't know what it meant. It didn't make sense to them. How can the Christ suffer? The Christ comes to be glorified. How, how can he be suffering? It's easy for you and me because we'd grown up knowing that Jesus died for our sins, right? But they didn't know that. They just thought, Christ is coming to rule the world. What, what's the suffering? doesn't make sense. But the Spirit of Christ was in them telling them that. But now it has been revealed to us. After the event, looking back, but now it's been revealed to us what it was meant. But it's revealed by the Holy Spirit. That is, it's not revealed just by hindsight. There's millions of people in this world who live after the death of Jesus and still don't understand what the death of Jesus is about. But the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, just as he revealed it in this strange way to the Old Testament prophets. Come with me to John 14. John 14. through to 16 because five times in this passage God tells us what the, uh, Jesus told the apostles what the Holy Spirit was coming to do there are five passages Emma I want you to read all five of them for me please and then I'll comment on each one as we go we're on first of all John 14 verses 15 to 17 Right? Jesus is about to leave them in his death and resurrection. But he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the helper to you. Now, what's the helper coming to do for them? Chapter 14, verse 25 is the next reference, please. So what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to be the teacher. He's going to be the teacher of Jesus' words. He's going to be the reminder of what Jesus has said. The third reference is again in chapter... No, it's in chapter 15 this time. Right at the end of the chapter, verses 26, 27. So the apostles were there from the beginning with Jesus.